there are certain sermon titles that I'm more proud of than others, and this, and this is one of them. In every family, there is always some measure of drama and dysfunction. It's true even among the most functional and healthy of families that we are imperfect people who live together with good and bad things and good and bad moments, and so there's always going to be some drama and dysfunction. And some families, of course, have more than others. The author Mary Carr was quoted as saying, I think any dysfunctional family is one that has more than one person in it. (laughs) George Carlin said, I went to a nice family restaurant last night. Every table had an argument going. The comedian George George Burns says, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. (laughs) And so often that dysfunction and that drama makes an appearance around the holidays, especially around holidays like Thanksgiving and Christmas. Whoever put those two holidays that close together must have had the healthiest family in the entire world. (laughs) Seeing all of that extended family within a month of each other is just a little bit much, I think. And it's bound to create drama and conflict. I read about a family this past week who got into a screaming match at Thanksgiving dinner about the validity and the plausibility of the Twilight movies. I don't know if you remember the Twilight movies, but those are the movies about these sexy vampires that live in Washington State. So they're getting into a screaming match with each other about the validity of those movies, and the screaming match spills over into this occasion where all the members of the family tell each other all the problems they have with one another. For you Seinfeld fans, that may remind you of the holiday Festivus. Apparently it's a real holiday, but the sitcom made it popular that the dysfunctional Costanza family would celebrate Festivus every year on December 23rd. And the Festivus practice is that there is the airing of the grievances. And Frank Costanza would start by saying, I got a lot of problems with you people and you're going to hear about them. And then it would all end with the feats of strength where Frank would then challenge one of the members of the family to a wrestling match, shades of last week's reading. Families are always dysfunctional, and that is true for us, and it has certainly been true for the families of Genesis as we've been following them along through the summer months. We have seen that dysfunction unfolding, and in some ways it has gotten worse and not better as we've read along through the summer. Someone once said that the only thing that can make your family's dysfunction seem less is by seeing the dysfunction of someone else's family. I think back to my grandmother and why she loved watching soap operas. She said watching all of that drama made her problems seem smaller. And so hopefully as we read through Genesis, it's made some of your problems seem a little bit smaller. Family dysfunction is not contained, though, within just one generation, but it often is a pattern that spans and repeats throughout the generations. The great philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche was once quoted as saying that family love is messy, clingy, and of an annoying and repetitive pattern like bad wallpaper. And we see that, that pattern of dysfunction playing out this morning. If you tuned in last week to the saga of the messy and dysfunctional families that is the book of Genesis, some of this will be review for you. It was kind of scandalous what I talked about last week. Uh, we met Jacob, the son of Isaac and Rebekah, and the grandson of Abraham and Sarah. And we got some of their family history, that Jacob was the twin brother of Esau, And even in utero, they were fighting with one another, causing a really uncomfortable pregnancy for their mother, Rebecca. And even once they're born, they're still constantly fighting and arguing with each other. And most of that fighting surrounded the receiving of the blessing from their father, Isaac. 
And Esau as the firstborn twin, even if it's just moments as the firstborn, is culturally entitled to receiving that blessing. But Jacob, though, is sort of a con man. He's a trickster and a huckster, and he's not willing to let Esau just get away with getting that blessing. And so the dysfunction between Jacob and Esau is really fueled by the dysfunctional parenting of Isaac and Rebekah. That Isaac plays favorites with Esau and Rebekah plays favorites with Jacob. And that favoritism culminates, remember last week, culminates when Rebekah and Jacob conspire together to trick Isaac, who is on his deathbed, by the way, to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to Jacob instead of Esau. And that favoritism is really what destroys the family. That Esau pledges revenge, pledges revenge, pledges to kill Esau, or pledges to kill Jacob the next time he sees him. And so Rebekah sends Jacob away to live with her brother Laban. And that's where it got really kind of spicy last week, right? Laban is Jacob's uncle, but he also becomes Jacob's father-in-law, not once, but twice. And that in and of itself is already dysfunctional. Jacob marries his two cousins, Leah and Rachel. And remember that Jacob wanted to marry Rachel and only Rachel. And Laban says to Jacob, you can marry Rachel if you work for me for seven years. You know, this pattern of exploitation repeating in the extended family also. So the wedding day arrives, and Laban switches the brides, gives Jacob Leah instead. And so Laban says, okay, now if you want to marry Rachel, you owe me another seven years of work. So we have this little love triangle forming between cousins. Jacob marries Rachel after another seven years of working for uncle-slash-father-in-law Laban. Jacob, who grew up in a house where favoritism was modeled for him, now repeats that pattern with his two wives. His favorite wife is Rachel. And that creates, as you can imagine, a dynamic between Rachel and Leah. In their marriages to Jacob, these two sister wives... Rachel and Leah have this little sibling rivalry forming between them. That Rachel is described as the beautiful and more attractive sister, and Leah is simply described as being weak-eyed. Rachel is the favorite wife. Jacob is described as loving her. But to be fair, Jacob didn't want to marry Leah. He was just tricked into marrying her. Leah, though, feels unloved. She's used as a pawn in her father Laban's schemes to exploit more labor from Jacob. And Jacob doesn't love her, really. This is a marriage of convenience. Her sister is the favorite and more attractive wife. And as is often the case throughout the Bible, God sees people who are in positions like Leah is in. God sees those that nobody loves, as I say to you at the end of our service each week. And what happens is that God blesses Leah with children, multiple children. And the hope is that as she provides these children for Jacob, and not just children, but sons, incredibly important in that cultural context, the hope is that it will endure Jacob to Leah. But even after giving birth to all of those children, Jacob still does not love her. Rachel is the favorite wife, the one that Jacob adores. But Miguel de la Torre, in his commentary on Genesis, notes that even as she is neglected by Jacob, as she is not favored, it is from the line of one of her sons, Judah, that the Israel's greatest king will arise, King David. And it's from that line that Jesus Christ is born. 
The one who comes into the world with a heartbeat for the broken and the unloved traces his family tree all the way back to this wife, neglected, unloved, and pawned off. As Leah has more and more children, Rachel, the favorite and beloved wife, remains childless. And she watches as her sister experiences that joy of becoming a mother. She sees her running around after the children, and Rachel waits. And as she waits, you can imagine her jealousy grows. Marital strife over her childlessness grows between her and Jacob. And then another unfortunate family pattern repeats. Rachel is part of the extended family tree of Abraham. Remember I told you last week the family tree is sort of a straight line? It's the case here. So Rachel gives Jacob one of her slaves, and Jacob has two children with her. Remember, thinking back to Abraham and Hagar and Sarah. And, then, and Leah isn't about to be outdone by Rachel, and so she also gives Jacob one of her slaves, and Jacob has a child with her. This pattern of abuse of using marginalized people just as Abraham Sarah, and Sarah did with Hagar. And finally, God grants Rachel the ability to have a child. The favorite wife has the favorite son, Joseph. And Jacob, like his father before him, like his mother before him, plays favorites. It's right there in the story. Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children. And he loved him so much that he made him a beautiful coat. He made him the technicolor dream coat, right? Jacob, though, does not hide his love and his favoritism for Joseph. His brothers can all see it, and his brothers hate Joseph for it. Joseph even shares the dreams that he has proudly at the breakfast table. Sheaves of wheat bowing down to him, and stars in the moon and the sun bowing down to him. And even in that second dream, Jacob, who loves Joseph more than the other children, says, listen, listen, buddy, you're 17 years old. You think that we're going to be bowing down to you? Patterns become ingrained. And as much as we want to break away from those things that our families of origin did, often the narratives that we receive play out with those who are closest to us. You remember those progressive uh, insurance commercials? Progressive can't keep you from, coming, from becoming your parent, but they can save you money on car insurance. <laughs> We've all had those moments where we say something or do something and say, oh, I sound just like my father, I sound just like my mother. And Jacob is becoming just like his father and his mother in this story. This whole family dysfunction is becoming a tangled mess of favoritism, of sibling rivalry and abuse, from Abraham and Sarah to Isaac and Rebekah to Jacob, Leah, and Rachel. Jacob, who was not favored by his own father, repeats that pattern with his other children, playing favorites with Joseph. The child of his favorite wife is the favorite child. And that favoritism, as it was in his own life, becomes the source of a sibling rivalry. Now, that story of Joseph is a really famous story. It's one of the more popular ones in the Bible. And we know that that favoritism and sibling rivalry really destroys Jacob's family, just as it destroyed his family of origin. The brothers, out of their jealousy, sell Joseph into slavery to a group of Ishmaelites, just to add another little layer to this dysfunctional cake. Remember, Ishmael was the son of Abraham and uh, Hagar. So these are distant relatives of Joseph being sold into slavery. And so Joseph ends up as a slave in Egypt. The brothers take his robe, they dip it into some goat's blood, and they tell Jacob Joseph was killed in a tragic accident by some wild animal. Harmful, destructive, and dysfunctional patterns that pass down through the generations. 
We see it playing out just a, a few generations into this journey with God in the book of Genesis. We see it playing out in our own lives. And of course, that dysfunction has an impact on our well-being. There, there are very obvious situations of extreme dysfunction. There are situations of abuse. Boys who grow up in homes where they witness domestic violence are three times as likely to become abusers themselves when compared to the general population. Children of alcoholics are four times as likely to become alcoholics themselves. But we also see dysfunction playing out in much more subtle ways. Favoritism, as we see in this story. One parent directing all of their love towards one child with the neglect of the other. Dysfunction can be revealed in that subtle way of, of poor communication where family members are unable to listen to each other so that individual members of the family feel unheard. Communication is disjointed rather than direct. And that can look like when one family member talks about another one behind their back and communication becomes passive-aggressive. There's the, the subtle dysfunction of perfectionism where parents cannot have exceptionally high standards for their children and they cannot accept failure. And the result of that is, of course, reduced playfulness in children. Perfectionism provides a steady dose of, of negative emotions that can cause someone to feel inadequate. There is excessive criticism Parents who put down their children for how they look, their, their appearance, their abilities, their interests, their passions. Sometimes that's direct, but other times it's veiled behind so-called teasing and jokes. And we all know the old adage, right, that behind every joke there is a grain of truth. And of course, that has a tremendous effect on self-value. We are all the products of the environments that we grew up in. We all have been wounded somehow. And we sometimes act out of that woundedness because we are unaware. We are unaware that that wound is even there in the first place. And that brokenness in our own lives remains hidden beneath the surface. And it's in that unconsciousness that those patterns have the tendency to repeat. We see that unconscious pattern of favoritism, sibling rivalry, and abuse playing out through three generations of patriarchs and matriarchs in the book of Genesis. All of our families are dysfunctional somehow and in some way. And sometimes those are very obvious, and other times they're pretty subtle. And often we are unconscious to that dysfunction. And it's in that unconsciousness that those patterns repeat. And what it takes for us is to become aware of how they exist in our own lives. And that is not an easy journey. That means going back and exploring old wounds instead of ignoring them and remaining unaware that they are even there. But it's in opening up those old wounds that we can become aware of the way that those things are playing out in our own lives. What could it have done for Jacob and his family if they had dug back into the past and seen that pattern of favoritism, of sibling rivalry and abuse playing out in his own family history? It may have helped him to notice how he was doing the exact same thing with his own children. He could have seen the hurt and the pain that was happening amongst his own sons. He could have seen the hurt and pain that was in his own life. As he looked backwards, he could have seen the hurt and the pain that was in Isaac and Rebekah, his parents, because they were wounded too, and they did things out of their own woundedness. One author says that it is only as we resolve the pain of the past that we can then move into a more authentic future. Those dysfunctional patterns stop when we become aware of those broken and wounded patterns and decide to chart a different path. It's when we become what's known as cycle breakers. Or in the words of the beloved author Henry Nouwen, it's when we become wounded healers. People who use their wounds not to harm others, 
but as a source of healing for others. They use it to chart a different path. And when we become people who break those unhealthy patterns, we walk into a brighter future. To be a cycle breaker is no easy task either. I don't want to make it sound like it's just a mind over matter kind of thing. It is a difficult task because breaking with the system puts you outside of the system. Sometimes that is the very thing that can help heal those family dynamics. And I'll share with you personally, for me, just to make this a little more concrete. As I've become a parent, one of the wounds that I've noticed in my own life is that I have this propensity towards perfectionism. I have this inability to to handle making mistakes. And one of the best examples I can give you of how that has played out in my life was when I was a basketball player back in junior high and high school. Now, not to brag too much, but I was pretty good at basketball. I had pretty good skills. I was as tall as I am now in eighth grade. It was a natural sport for me to play. But when it came to the game, I actually struggled. And I struggled because when I got onto the court, I wasn't playing basketball, but I was playing my own game of don't make a mistake and lose the game for your team. One of my seminary internship supervisors found out about my aversion to making mistakes, and he told me that it was now his goal to make me mess up as much and as big as possible. (laughs) Don't let that be your goal as I'm being installed this afternoon. Because he, and his goal wasn't to, to be mean to me, but it was to help me to learn that I make mistakes. And of course I make mistakes. I make them every day. You can talk to Heather. She'll tell you about all the mistakes that I make. <laughs> and as I think about my relationship with my son, Axel, that pattern of perfectionism is one that I am trying to break. I want Axel to know that he can mess up sometimes, that sometimes the juice spills, that it, even if he gets a C on the report card or something breaks, that mom and dad still love him. I want him to receive that he doesn't have to be perfect in order to be loved. I want him to know that there is grace in this life because we serve a God who is gracious to us, and how can he know that if it's not modeled for him? We are all cycle breakers. We are all called to be cycle breakers and wounded healers. And I do often wonder about God's plans Remember that God chose this family, starting with Abraham, to be a blessing to the entire world. They were called to be a channel of God's goodness and love. And a few generations on now, I'm wondering, really, God, this is the family that you have chosen? This family is going to be the channel of your love and blessings to the entire world? This family that is constantly abusing each other, tricking each other, engaged in constant sibling rivalries, this really unhealthy pattern of dysfunction? And honestly, God could not have picked a more dysfunctional and messed up family. They can't even bless and love themselves, much less the rest of the world. But God, it seems, loves calling messy and imperfect people. Messy and imperfect and sometimes, yes, comically dysfunctional people, families, and communities to be the sources of blessings and love in the world. That God is a God of those who are wounded. That God who sees Hagar out in the wilderness on the verge of, of dying of thirst and of hunger. God who sees Sarah who is wondering about her place in, the, all, in, in God's story. God who sees Leah neglected, pawned off. God who sees Jacob on the banks of the Javik River. God who sees Joseph as he is enslaved in Egypt. And God uses him to do an amazing thing. And we'll hear about that next week. God calls wounded and hurt people so that they may be a source of healing and wholeness for others. 
And that path towards healing begins with ourselves and those who are closest to us. That in order to be a blessing of love towards the rest of the world, we first need to take that, undertake that journey of our own self-healing, of breaking cycles, of charting new futures. The social justice and children's rights advocate, L.R. Nose, says that when we break cycles of abuse, of generational pain, of dysfunction, of violence, of oppression, we transform that vicious cycle of hurting people, hurting people into healing people, healing people. Transform that cycle of hurting people, hurting people into healing people, healing people. Because we all, in some measure and in some way, are all people who are on the process of healing. And Nos continues by saying, the world heals. One hopeful, healing, aching human heart at a time. And it will be Jacob's son, Joseph, who will finally break that cycle and offer forgiveness to his brothers as they reunite in Egypt. It's one of the greatest stories of forgiveness in the Bible but that's a story for another time. Each one of us is wounded and broken somehow. It is never easy to face those injuries in our lives, and sometimes that journey back to self-healing is journeying back to a, a place of woundedness that we swore we would never go again. It's that journey, though, as hard as it may be, that promises us that there is healing and wholeness on the other side. And we can begin to heal ourselves little by little, broken cycle after broken cycle. And as those cycles break, a new future begins. And God's love and blessings actually flow through us. God's love and blessings flow through those messy and dysfunctional families of Genesis. And even in our own mess and in our own dysfunction, God's love and blessings flow through us and the world heals little by little. Thanks be to God. Amen.